welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here with us today. Cheers. Cheers, fella. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Um, so, Craig, you are the data scientist, chief data scientist for uh, Consiris. Correct. Which is a uh, data-focused insurtech company, doing some interesting stuff in uh, the insurance space. Um, but you're also a very well-rounded data leader. Prior to this, uh, you were in corporate banking. You were a director for uh, Credit Suisse. Correct. And you've also got a entrepreneurial side to you as well, being a, a co-founder of a, a tech business uh, a while ago, Data Mantis. So, um, yeah, clearly uh, a lot of uh, information, a lot of wealth of knowledge you can impart on us today. So really looking forward to the episode and, and picking your brains um, as a data leader. So let's start where we always like to start at the beginning. Um, you know, and if you'd be so kind to tell us a bit about your journey into becoming a data leader and, uh, you know, what inspired you to get into the, the data field in the first place, uh, that would be awesome. Oh, thanks, Guy. Uh, well, you know, thank you for having me. Um, so I guess I started out life as a um, electronic and computer engineer. You know, that was my first degree. Um, and, you know, what really got me into that was a you know, at the time, we, you know, we weren't walking around with like supercomputers in our pockets at that time, right? So there was there wasn't a lot of gadget, right? So if you wanted gadget, you wanted cool stuff, you'd have to make it yourself. And to me, that was all kind of like magic. So that's what engineering for me was was like learning magic. So so that's what you know what got me into into that stuff. But what I, I sort of realised towards the end of the degree was, you know, I was designing computer chips and doing really cool stuff, but it was all really small and. You know, like, bigger's better. Oh, don't get me started, right? So <laughs> I wanted to get into, like, you know, how do I build, like, plants and giant machines and, you know, robots that can take over the world and, you know, that sort of stuff, you know what I mean? So um, what I decided was, was I went into control systems engineering. So okay. it kind of took all my knowledge around electronics and all that good stuff and all the, the stuff that you learn, but it sort of scaled. It was, an, it was sort of from micro to macro level. And it also, you know, like, talking about three-phase power and all that cool Basically, you know, I'm attracted to danger. So, <laughs> so you know, it was all that cool stuff. And um, so I, I, I started working for um, the largest whiteware manufacturer in Australasia. Um, it was a really amazing job. I had an incredible mentor by the name of Jim Krask, um, who made me the engineer I am today. And he, uh, and basically, I did everything from sort of laser welders to you know, multi-ton presses or twenty-ton presses to, um, you know conveyors to folders or you name it we, we worked in it and it was that was one of the first times where I was sort of exposed to understanding and not being freaked out by complexity so you know I'd turn up for a breakdown or something and it'd be like you'd open a cabinet and there'd be literally thousands of wires and you're like how on and like I remember my first few days I was thinking I can't do this you know and mm. Um, but what it was what I learned was you know how to break down a problem mm. and and you know how to see the wood for the trees, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. very <laughs> and, important in data. <laughs> yeah, and and that sort of stuff. And so I had a re yeah. So it was a really uh, amazing experience there. And and then um, I sort of got a bit academically bored. So I did a master's full time while I worked there. Um, so I didn't have much of a life, but it was amazing. And uh, I, um, and I was strangely um, what it, it was a very mathematically focused master's, very heavy on maths. Um, but one of the courses I did was, I guess, what we would probably call modelling now. Mm. Um, and um, there was a there was a gentleman there, um, Professor David I. Wilson, changed my life. And it was like I, you know, I walked out of there so cocky, thinking I could model anything, you know, and. Mm. He was just a, what a legend, and that sort of stuck with me for a long, long time. Nice. So anyway, I that was sort of in the back. So you know, a few days after I graduated my masters, I was on a plane to England, had enough money for a one-way ticket, 
um, and enough money to survive for a month and, you know, back yourself. So, and then, you know, so here I am now, but I basically fell into um, sort of the oil and gas renewable energy sector. Um, I think I've probably made enough renewable energy machines to have multiple lifetimes of negative carbon footprint, to be honest. So, okay, good work. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> On behalf of the rest of the human yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of, you know, always a bonus that it's your job, you know. And um, um, so I did... Oh, loads, so I built plants all around the world. I've I designed uh, Europe's first coal bed methane facility. Um, yeah, revolutionised, to be fair, the, the landfill gas industry. I, like some of these sites had to have nuclear grade control systems on them. Um, you know, if they were off for an hour, you know, the fines were bad. If they were off for a day or two, people started going to jail sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah, that was really, really cool. And mm. um, But, you know, I always have sort of had this niggling thing in the back of my mind about the modelling and cool stuff. So I started sort of predicting the fuel consumption of engines and things like that. You know, these things were containerized, big V16s, you know, the size of a shipping container. Mm. Um, and uh, and that was really fun. But I kind of I kind of kept thinking back to, you know, when I, like my induction on my very, when I was an apprentice, when I first got to that whiteware place. And I remember I was with this old sort of grizzled sparky who was very lazy, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> but and he had to take the, you know, the, the, the green guy around show you know and we got called over to this um to this big machine and you know this this guy had been you know the, the you know the um the, the man on the factory floor you know he'd been working this machine i think for like 14 years or something so he knew every noise wiggle you know everything about it and i'll never forget and uh, he said to the he said to the you know the, the most senior um electrician you know industrial sparky he said oh this conveyor's gonna break and he was like you can't call me over here to fix something that's not broken. And he's like, yeah, but we're on smoko, you know, we're on break. Can you fix it now? And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And off we went. Sure enough, about an hour into production, it split. And they lost thousands and thousands and thousands in production. And so, you know, I always thought, well, wait a minute. I learned all this cool stuff from David around modeling. Couldn't I create something that could learn what that guy had learned in a shorter amount of time? Mm. Um, and then... What sort of really sort of sparked it was I was on a site where I had two identical engines next to each other, which was quite rare because the manufacturer loved to change them all the time. Right. And they were on the same fuel, but the guys there would be like, oh, can you restart that one because it likes you better? And, you know, <laughs> and you know, they'd almost have to do like a rain dance or, you know. Yeah. And it was one of those things where the just the tolerances, differences in, in tolerances of everything, everything added up to a very different personality, even though these things were supposed to be the same. And I thought... Okay, so it's not just a problem about being able to predict and, you know, understand stuff, but even when you've all got the same stuff, they're all different. So I thought this is a, actually a big problem because, you know, certainly in that world, like if a new alternator or something like that, that's at least a six to eight week lead time. And you can't have all these things, all that capital sitting on the shelf, right? So mm. I, um, I I started a, 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 sorry, a PhD at Imperial College. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, in what's called prognostics and diagnostics, which is basically trying to understand the sort of the health of a system and then basically work out when it's going to die. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like saying, uh, the doctor's saying, you're not good, you've got three months to live. Right. You know, or if you don't change what you're doing now, you're going to die in 10 years or something. You know, right. So it's one of those things. And, um, and then, yeah, sort of just, it sort of got away. And so I, I got to put all that great stuff I'd learned from David into practice and it sort of ran away with itself really. And um, I then started doing what we now call data science in the... Um, every sort of the food and beverage industries and things like that. So um, everything from fish farms to the whiskey industry, you know, like that, trying to stop the angel share and all that sort of fun stuff. And um, 
and you know really highly combinatorial problems with these like sort of 80 components or ingredients and things like that where they're just trying to understand you know why stuff just randomly comes out rubbish you know and that was really really fascinating and then from there I kind of got poached um, to a tier one investment bank and I read uh, I ran like a I guess you call it like a skunk works like a top secret um, uh, team to create tools that could discover rogue trading so rogue trading is basically what sort of brought down or caused the first financial crisis where mm. you know traders are very much like gamblers you know they're, 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 they're taking punts on things but you know, there's so many systems and ways that you could like accidentally go, oh, do you know what? I make, I'm, hey, buddy, can you put this on your book for a while? Because I'm like way over and I'll trade myself out. And so there's all this sort of horse trading going on in the background. And, uh, but you know, there, there was like, I believe there was over 800 systems, right? So uh, it was very easy for people to move things around and, and, and for those sorts of situations to happen. So I designed a system there um, that was completely unsupervised, that was able to basically work out. Um, when people were up to no good, and uh, and, that's, and that was brilliant. And then, sort of after a while, I decided to productionize my um, PhD. So I had a startup for a while, which was going amazingly, swimmingly. Really, really proud of it. But then COVID hit, and sort of everything kind of died, which was a real shame. But mm. I wouldn't change that time for anything. It was, um, you know, going through and you know getting funding and all that stuff. So that was, uh, uh, you know, an eye opener for me. It was really exper- a really great experience. I but then. Imagine. And then from there, um, I know I'm jumping and skipping a few things, but this is I'm trying to keep it the yeah, <laughs> great yeah, good, all good so far. And um, so I started. Um, I was a little bit sort of fell out of love with data science a little bit because I've been working day and night on my business and stuff. So right. I went back to systems architecture, um, and I worked for a DevSecOps company. So that's all about you know personal personally identifiable information and making sure that stuff doesn't get to the, you know the wrong people and things like that. So if you ring a call, you know, a help desk, they can't see your credit card number and, you know, all that cool stuff through through systems. Um, and then I ended up running their data science team as well, um, which was really, really fun and, and converting them into big data technologies like Spark and all that cool stuff, you know, so, um, which was great and, and designing that product. And then from there, um, I, 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 got, I got recommended to the job I'm in now. Um, I used to run something... Um, called the Machine Learning Affinity Group at um, that bank. And uh, the, the gentleman who ran it, bef- who, who, who would only entrust it to me when he handed it over, he's the gentleman that, um, who recommended me for this position. So we used to, I think at the time there was anywhere from thirty to 50,000 people who worked for that bank. So we used to regularly every sort of week or two sort of do sort of debunking or I'd like to do debunking or, or, you know, sort of put everything in simple terms around how these technologies work. And so there was a, it was a really, um, it was a really cool opportunity to sort of spread sort of AI and data science and stuff when it was kind of in its, much more in its infancy. So that was really cool. And um, so, yeah, so now I'm in InsureTech. So it's a really, really cool space. We basically, I wouldn't say pricing, we create pricing models, but we kind of, they're more like risk or exposure models where, we help insurers understand the amount of money that was going to be claimed from a policy. Okay. And then they can essentially adjust their premiums to make sure that they're, they're not going to be um, out of pocket, you know. Okay. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, we, we kind of, you know, we build them in sort of two models. We've got, so the, the, they're kind of two models in one. So the, the frequency part is what I like to call, it's easy to spot an idiot. Um, so we put lots of behavioral stuff in there, you know, in terms of, 
you know, we, we all know the, the friend that we've got that you'd probably never let them drive your car, you know. <laughs> they've got many. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're bound to have an accident, but you don't know how bad it's going to be. Yeah. And so the other sort of side of this sort of stuff is the severity model, which is all about, um, you know, like if it goes wrong, how, how much it's going to cost you on average sort of thing, So, which is much sort of more tricky to pick because... You know, like you can imagine, you know, someone's left the handbrake off in their car, you know, rolls down a hill, misses an old lady, goes past a school, luckily nobody's out, goes down the hill, through the through, you know, through an intersection, somehow manages to miss all the cars and then gets a little scrape when it stops. You know, that stuff can play out very differently. So that's one of the things in, in, in that world that's really like a cool challenge is to understand how, you know, is that perfect storm going to happen or, you know, and, and sort of try and find that sweet spot. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, sir. What an interesting background. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, I've heard a lot of those. It's, it's very interesting. And I love, I love what you were saying. There's obviously a lot of parity um, and, and parallels between, you know, an engineering and analytical mindset and the world of data. And like you said, I love the, 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 this point you made about not being overfaced by a problem, because I guess that's mm. the most important thing in anything in engineering or, or data really is how do you t- tackle a, a big, seemingly messy problem? Yep. and uh, really simplify it into um, you know, an elegant solution. So, um, yeah, I love that. Um, so in short, then, when you talked about being uh, interested in, in uh, fueled by danger, I wasn't expecting insurance to be the, the, <laughs> the end point of where we were going yeah, yeah. we to go, but yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's, it is where we are. Um, so talk us through your experience. I mean, insurance is an area that seems quite ripe for disruption and a lot of AI, machine learning, um, you know, applied to it in, in recent times to... Uh, create efficiencies but I'm ex- interested to understand your background as a, a broader data leader having now gone into the insurance space where do you feel actuarial data science and the world of more general data science mm. and machine learning let's say where do you feel those those worlds sort of interact and, and converge um to be honest I find there's like a real parallel from when I was sort of doing electronics and it was all sort of you know embedded systems and stuff where you know, if, the, if they trusted you to do it and you did it and it didn't bug out, that was good enough, versus, you know, the big machines where everything's visible, you know, and they need a screen to understand what's going on and they, they're asking questions. I kind of feel like machine learning is going through that sort of thing right now where, you know, before machine learning seemed to be very much a sort of esoteric, very bespoke sort of thing, you create that module or that, you know, that API or whatever and... And then it was like, and if you did a bit like a bit like mathematics, if you'd done the process really, you know, and you'd follow the pattern, you did everything right, you could, you would, as the as the data or machine learning engineer or data scientist, you'd be, you'd trust what you did, and then everybody just by default trusted you where it goes. Whereas, you know, from the the, you know, I'm not an actuary, but the, the you know the the view that I've had on their world is, you know, they've all been about explainability since day one, and they're amazing at it, and the way that they do that, so. You know, machine learning now is, you know, we've got these things like, you know, I don't know if you've come across things like Shapley values and stuff. So we're trying to explain the um, the, the importance of features, the things that are driving models. Whereas in the linear or, or actuarial world, um, you know, more generally that, you know, they have weights or coefficients that explain that stuff really easily. And, you know, in the, you know, in the real world, there are these sort of complex interactions that happen and things, but it's much easier for our brain to... St- as a starting point to think about things individually in terms of how they're contributing and then work from there. Um, and, and there's no, you know, people are now like not scared of the technology and things, right? They're like, but why, but why? So now you really have to back it up with what you're doing. So what I love is there seems to be this, 
you know, it's like the, you know, the new school is learning from the old school again about, you know, how to do it right. And, and I love that. And um, so we've now got this sort of like, you know, this really lovely middle ground where I guess I'd call them like linear-esque models with, you know, these additive things where you can sort of see how much importance each feature would make, but each component is non-linear. So you're still able to capture all sorts of extra interactions and things like that. So it's quite an, it's quite an exciting space, but it's, what I've loved is the is the the ability of the all the great things you know that actuaries do and stuff. There's so much insight and and you know it's a, it's I don't want to say theory and practice difference because it's, it's probably an unfair, but what I'm saying is this, you know like they've had to be public facing the whole time in terms of explaining what they're doing, and I think there's a lot of learning that can that can be taken from that into to machine learning now where people need transparency, they need to have explainability and. You know, by all by all accounts, we've got some regulation coming in next year. That's which I think is is a great idea, uh, just just for that because um, you know some of these things you know decide whether you get a mortgage or you know like or, or you know whether you're guilty or you should get a job or you know all these sorts of things. And so you know those sorts of that sort of stuff is really really important. But I love that um, you know in our journey that we've been able to learn so much from the actuarial um, community. It's been great. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess the. The term AI is getting, you know, wider adoption in the world that we live in now. Then you've got to look at things like ChatGPT that have obviously had yep. mass um, adoption. Um, to you know, the world of machine learning, I guess, is evolving at such a pace now. And you've you've worked in renewables, you've worked in shorter, you know, you've worked in banking. Really keen to understand from your perspective, you know, what other applications of uh, machine learning are you most excited about in the world in, in general now? It can be outside of InsureTech. Yeah, but, um, I mean. <laughs> To be honest, I think I'm, I'm quite I'm quite excited about sort of um, taking a a check right now of where we are because you know the, if you if you look at like um, there's a um, you know Vigna talked about you know the unreasonable effective, effectiveness of maths right you look at things like graphic processing and stuff right the those deep neural networks are not really looking at the whole picture at a time right they're doing it in segments and things like that and then somehow the results that they can produce is just so much better than you thought they could, right? And then you look at things like large language models, like, you know, the GPTs and of the world and things like that. You know, they're predicting one character at a time, and yet suddenly you can talk to them like they're a teacher, mm. you know? So these, to me, are what I would call, like, emergent properties that are coming out of these things. And, you know, you know people talk about, you know, what is consciousness and all that cool stuff as an emergent thing. I think we're seeing it now in terms of, you know, things being greater than the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm. I think this is for me is like a, as a real turning point in, in, in terms of, you know, like this is amazing stuff. And, you know, you just have to look at like the, you know, the human eye, for example, that behaves digitally. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, if you've ever looked at a cartwheel and it looks like it's going backwards slowly or a propeller or a helicopter wheel and it looks like it's going back slowly. That's called time aliasing. You know, that's telling us that the human eye takes regular samples. It's not continuous. It takes no. regular samples. And if it's not sampling fast enough, stuff looks, starts like going backwards. So wait a minute. So the human eye behaves digitally. So it's not... I'm starting to think, you know, this is not an us and them thing. I think these technologies are a little bit closer to real life than people actually realise in terms of, you know... A lot of our systems are behaving the same. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, think about the human brain in terms of the way neurons uh, work and, you know, obviously they're firing along a, a longer synapse and it's no different really to, like you say, just one neuron speaking to the next neuron to predict, you know, a behaviour. It's no different to, you know, one 
part of ChatGPT, picking the next character based on yeah. probability. But, and so on but and so also, forth. you know, people seem seem to think of us as like analog systems, right? Yeah. Where you know, like where there's where there's no click, 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 like a like a processor or a or one of those sorts of things where it's all just live, you know, the whole time analog. Yeah. But but like I said, with the human eye and those, there seems to be digital sampling. You know, that's that's digital signal processing mathematics, right? That's kind of freaky. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, I think we're going to see a lot more technologies coming out where they're just way they're unreasonably good at what they're doing. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And yeah. um, and that's the whole thing about machine learning, right? These are all tools that hopefully will combine to produce AI at some point, right? Yeah. Um, so, but I think you know we should be really amazed with what we've already done, and I think people are we, we're sort of evolving quite quickly, and we're we, we you know we're going. We just need to realise that th these things are quite amazing, and and these and the power of these things is, is definitely emergent. So, um, I think you know the next sort of ten years is going to be quite incredible. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I and mean, if you look at actually how far we have evolved in, I mean, I know ChatGPT is not the first large language model that's, that's um, existed, but it obviously is the one that's I think achieved most widespread recognition and adoption uh, and I guess it's because they made it public right it's obviously <laughs> a clever move from from that regard um, but yeah you know if you look at what we've actually achieved in in the last sort of few years and scale of how long mankind's been around it's a blink of an eye isn't it and you know it's very exciting to think actually what is that next sort of 10 20 30 yeah, and, look like? but also you know the the thing that I that's most comforting about it is that you know, you still need that human element to, to train these things, to create the data in the first place for the most part, right? And, yeah. you know, like, you know, all of that learning has come from human writing. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. so I, I love the fact that the human's baked into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it only means anything in relation to how a human uses that information anyway, isn't it? So yep. um, it all falls back down to, to that. But uh, no, I think it's a very good point. Um, Okay, cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about you as a, a data leader then. Um, obviously, years of experience, and I'm always really interested to sort of pick your brains on how you approach, I guess, this this sort of concept of breaking down um, a large problem. So are there any particular methodologies you would use habitually, irrespective of the situation, the domain, yep. the, the type of problem that, you know, you would, uh, you know, use to successfully execute a, a data science project, let's say? Yep. So, so from an engineering perspective, I would say, what makes a great engineer is being able to break a problem down into the right number of parts. You know, too few and each part is overcomplicated, and too many, the system as a whole is too complicated, right? So if you've got that skill set to break a problem down into the right number of parts, you're away laughing. Um, in terms of data science, I think one of the, the major things that needs to keep happening is sort of, you know, I talked about it before, there's the human in, in the loop, is having an SME. So, you know, because what's great about that is, you know, just think about things like, you know, feature selection or stuff like that. You know, having a sort of a, a ground truth of, or at least a, of what they think is driving the problem and understanding it. Straight away, you can either prove or disprove a whole bunch of um, urban myths or, 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 or thinking or, you know, where they haven't had the data before. So mm -hmm. straight away, that's great in terms of confirming what you're doing. But also, you know, that old one of, you know, about correlation is not causation, right? You know, I, I can make you a model that, that models sunspots on the moon to predict the price of fish, right? It's just an exchange rate converter thing. Um, and, but there's no relationship between them. So that's the thing you have to really watch out for, right, is that you're actually trying to describe the problem the problem properly. So having an SME in the loop is really, really important. And it's... It can it can it can it can be like really insightful or really obvious, but it gives you a great starting place. And 
like a, a an example I had, like a, it's quite a simple problem I had was I, I got called into a business where they couldn't understand why their 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 um you know their production fa- uh, figures were were low when every time they walked past the plant, um it was running at nearly basically 100 percent right. And they couldn't understand what was going on, um so I obviously got all the data for it and then but then I I, I spoke to the um. I spoke to the you know the the the, the manager of the, of the of the floor, and I said, okay, so how was this machine actually run? They're like, oh well, you know, we have three shifts, we have like five teams, they rotate, but you know, this is all really sort of good sort of knowledge about the problem, right? Um, and this was a classic. I just basically went, okay, and so I got I got I got the HR information about where the ships were, uh, sorry, the shifts were, and the teams, and blah blah, and I and I and I and I just basically dissected the thing by shift, and sure enough. One shift was way below their production levels than the other. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I, so I just took that shift and it went day, and then I divided by day of the week. And then Monday was terrible, and obviously, and Sunday was zero. So I was able to go back to the SME and go, um, I'm guessing you guys don't work on a Sunday. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I forgot to tell you that. So that's, <laughs> that, that's good to confirm that. But what it, what it turned out was, as they were cleaning the machines on a Sunday, and then everyone was coming in at 6 a.m. Um, but they weren't saying anything because it basically meant they could go and sleep in their car or they could have just talk and drink coffee and muck around till about 10 o'clock because all the management were coming in on a Monday morning to do their their leadership calls. So nobody was walking past the machines. Right. So, you know, just by understanding how that system worked in terms of how it was being operated and that SME knowledge meant that, you know, literally within an hour I'd worked out exactly what was going on and nobody was telling the management that the, the calibration of all the machine was being knocked out by the cleaners and nobody cared because they wanted a big break. <laughs> you know, so having the SME in the loop is really important. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what about how teams should be structured uh, within a business for successful data adoption? And I guess I'm talking about things here like, um, you know, data mesh. It's yep. this kind of newfangled uh, terminology that's come out that I think, you know, um, is interesting to see how it can be adopted in, in different ways. But what's your take on that and how do you feel projects and teams should be structured um, efficiently within organisations? I think the, you know, the without sort of stating the obvious, the key thing around data is being able to actually get it to the people, right? So they love to call it democratisation of data and things like that, you know. Yeah. But, but basically, um, you know, there's been a history of having sort of these centralized teams and these big server farms and and basically they're you know like it's a little bit like a jack of all trades they don't really know the data and detail of any, any one thing but they're trying to be all things to all people and they're also the gatekeepers and so sort of big data has had this challenge uh historically where there's just always this one bottleneck um so i really love ideas like data mesh um where you kind of basically the people who produce the data should you know are responsible for the data and they also kind of know who should and shouldn't have access to it so it's kind of having a, um, a, a you know almost like a a, a democracy or, or like a parliament about how you manage everything and um, and 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 what I really love about it is this whole is not being locked into any one vendor being able to connect to this connect to that you know and and it all sort of has this one abstraction layer that looks that all beautifully organized and the most important thing there is being able to bring your own um, tool. You know, like people talk about bring your own device and stuff. But, mm. um, you know, like not everybody in the, in, is going to be able to know SQL. Um, some people like Tableau. Some people like Power BI or, you know, or, or ClickView or whatever, right? Or they want an Excel plugin. So it's really that whole democratization thing is really about being able to expose, um, you know, sort of like things like JDBC connectors and all that good stuff so that 
people can use the stuff that they're comfortable with, um, but it doesn't really matter what they use as long as they get to the data, you know? Yeah. And so that's one of the things we're building at the moment um, is exactly that. So we can literally click in customer data if we want to. We can click in all these different um, data products we're building for different industries, and sorry, segments of insurance and stuff. So that... Um, and what it means is if you have these things, what, what they, like, they like to now call data as a product or yep. a data product, um, it means, oh, if you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a bit of this, suddenly you might have a whole new product. And instead of spending months and months trying to have SLAs agreed of access and pipelines, and it's all self-service. So you just you go and hit it, you get it, and away you go. So um, we're really hoping that's gonna this sort of approach will also have a real benefit on the sort of rapid prototyping and things like that. Um, and also, you can't always be reliant on a data engineering team to export stuff for you, right? Mm. It, this, for this stuff to be scalable, it has to be self-service. So, you know, we've you know the, we've learned a lot over the last sort of 10, 20 years in terms of big data, right? In terms of what does and doesn't work. And I think this is a really good step towards um, making things a lot easier. Fair enough. Can you see any um, limitations, I guess, of, of a decentralized data architecture and, and kind of big concerns or, you know... The absolutely, of yeah, absolutely. Data. So the, the biggest, you know, as usual, the biggest problem is probably the human element, right? So, because um, each person has to sort of own their own domain um, and, and like, the, the, the pr production of the data products is, is not really a big deal because chances are they're producing that, some, that, that data product for some kind of internal system or some report or something, you know, but they're sharing it because it might be useful to somebody else. So, I'm not. It's not so much that, but then it's when you've got the sort of the the, com, the communal administration, um, making sure that you keep that working and functioning in a um, as sweetly as is, is important because everybody gets busy and things like that. So, um, but I think you know um, a, a job shared is probably much easier than having one team having to be hammered all the time. And so, I think um, I think once the once you've got the culture set up right. I think it'll be a. I think it'll be a winner. Fair enough. Do you know any examples of, of kind of big companies that have implemented it and, and absolutely smashed it so far? I think I think it's pretty early early days at the minute in terms of I wouldn't say smashed it because there's often a lot of sort of technical you know st stuff under the bonnet that can get in your way and especially like. In larger organisations, you know, there's very strong borders between. They're almost like broken up into smaller businesses. Do you know what I mean? And mm. so um, you, you sort of run into that initial <coughs> problem of just getting the data. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I think um, you know, there's. I do know. I, I probably I won't quote them now, but there's there's some really there are some really really good examples where um, you know they've used data mesh with Kafka, for example, for high speed messaging and right. um, and the and the beautiful thing about it is, for example, if you don't really need a high performant thing, you can just store something in S3. You know, if you really need you know real time access, you maybe can put a really clever database behind it. But to the user, the queries, nothing changes. And and for me, that's the one thing I want is I don't want all my pipelines, I don't want all my scripts to suddenly have to have um, A, like um, hard-coded passwords, heaven forbid, and things like that. But what I really don't want to have is um, is to be changing the way that I write that SQL or mm. all those requests to that system. So I need like a, a foundation that doesn't change and then everything behind it can change. And that's the bit that I really love about it is you can swap out technologies under the bonnet, but at least you can keep that organization layer at the top so that everybody yeah. knows. And then, and it's searchable and it's got audit trails and, you know, role-based access or security groups, all that good stuff. So it ticks so many boxes for me at the minute in terms of just, um, 
yeah. being able to do governance, organisation, and and like I said, like <clears throat> not being locked into a vendor. Yeah, yeah, it seems seems like a very logical approach, and and feels like the pros should massively outweigh the cons. So. Uh, the, the jury is out, I guess. But uh, I think I said to you not long ago that we did um, uh, a CDO roundtable uh, only a few weeks ago, and it was quite amazing to see how many like quite senior data figures hadn't even heard of a data mesh, let alone even started to democratise data and yeah. implement one. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it's adopted moving forward. But uh, but no, I agree with you. There's definitely a lot of uh, potential there. Um, cool. So let's talk a little bit about how you would go about growing a team I guess from a recruitment perspective, as a data leader, uh, you've obviously got this really nice, well-rounded engineering background, a very analytical mindset. Clearly, um, the world of, of data science—you know—you've only got to look at a CV from one month to the next month, and there's 15 new libraries on there and, and tools that have come yep. about. Obviously, it's rapidly evolving uh, day by day. But is there a common tr- set of traits or characteristics that you feel are really important that you would look for? Uh, when hiring uh, a quality data scientist, it can be either technical or you know, personality attributes. But is there yeah. anything you sort of use as a benchmark for you know someone that is really going to add value to a team? Yeah, I think um, creativity, uh, although it probably sounds a bit cliche, is actually the key thing because sometimes when I interview people um, and I ask them how would you solve this problem or that problem, they keep repeating the same things that they've done in, on this one project. You know, right, yeah. and that's. Okay, but, you know, first of all, A, did you know you were following best practice or not? Um, And B, but what else could you do? You know, like being able to have people who are, you know, are actively interested in, like, the new libraries and the new things and stuff coming out, um, and, you know, they have a passion for it, and they're wondering how they can combine these things or how they can... It's problem-solving, basically, is is the biggest attribute because... This is this whole data science thing's all about thinking outside the box, especially when you think about, you know, the first steps we often do on these things is, is what we call an EDA or an exploratory data analysis. You have no idea where the data is going to lead you and what you're going to find, and 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 theoretically you could ask a million questions, right? But having someone who's who's got the the problem solving or creativity to ask the right questions, and then take that back to the customer and go, by the way, did you know this? And they're like, oh wow, I never knew that, you know. Um, straight away in my data or whatever. So I think having someone who can think on their feet um, and and be prepared to just go in a different direction depending on where the, the data is driving them. And, you know, for example, you know, you know, you might have data that, you know, okay, a tree-based model is, 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 more, is, is more appropriate for that. Do you know what I mean? Um, or within that, which kind of flavour of that do you want, you know? Um, so it's, it's really being able to be... A, a, Adaptive and being able to sort of like roll with the punches, yeah. um, but also being able to be really creative in terms of your solutions. You know, so you know I've got guys on my team that are um, that are you know doing some really cool research and all sorts of different types of new models and things to see if we can we can we can make those so that we can you know help with the explainability and other things. You know, bridging that actuarial gap that I talked about before. Um, you know that that sort of lust for knowledge and you know pushing the boundaries is really really important to me. Yeah, yeah, I can, uh, I can believe that. And, and I love, you know, over my 15 years in recruitment, I've recruited for, I guess, software engineers and data scientists in equal measure, but one of the, not casting dispersions over the world of software engineering here, but one of the things I do love about data scientists in particular is it does seem that there's a, um, a passion for understanding the problem, you know, and actually how the solution is going to solve that problem more so than in the world of software engineering where sometimes, you know, you can be given a spec and go, right, there you go, code that, 
and, and away you go. Whereas in data science, it does feel more of a a business centric. Um, yeah, I think in many ways. I think the biggest you know thing that I've worry I've come across is that um, what I would call maybe a surface level knowledge might answer. 80% of your questions or, or give someone enough comfort that they know what they're doing. And there's, there's I've, I've noticed a lot of candidates recently that have had that sort of slightly deeper than surface level knowledge, but they don't, or they've had really good mentors. And, and so they've been doing stuff as, as best practice, but they don't know why they're doing it. And mm. they don't know why that was a good idea. And they don't know actually how does that stuff work under the bonnet. And, you know, like we, you know, we, a lot of data scientists, you know, they need to have everything set up when they turn up. Like, they don't have any DevOps skills. They don't understand how, you know, parallel computing works. You know, this stuff needs to be sort of more bled into their into their knowledge in terms of, you know, how do you optimise the performance of what you're doing so it doesn't cost the business huge amounts of money with hardware sitting around doing nothing. So, mm. or is that, fa you know, you could make that 10 times faster just because you, you did the query wrong or that you you cocked up the way that you designed the cluster and the memory and all that good stuff. So the, I've, I've noticed a, a scary trend. Well, I say scary. There's a, there is a layer of data scientists at the minute that know enough to be dangerous, um, but they don't realise there's that extra little layer below them. And it's, it's probably I'm showing my age here, but the, um, and that's what I try and look for as a warning and, and, and that they, you know, the, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know everything. And, yeah. Um, but without actually knowing really how it fundamentally works under the bonnet or what it's actually doing. Like, um, like for example, like in feature selection, you know, you know, we often use like lasso regression or something like that, something from the linear world, which is like incredibly powerful. But they don't know why it works. You know, mm -hmm. they don't know why it works. So why are you using it? So there's, you know, being able to know why you're using the tool you're using is really, really important. And I think there's, um, you know, that that's the sort of the data scientists that I look for are the ones that that know that detail and they know, and they're able to f fight their position on why they're doing it, yeah. um, and that gives and then for me that gives me a lot more confidence in the work they produce. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think, there, Craig, that comes from is that a mindset or do you think that just comes from good old experience? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I think um, you know the the thing with machine learning and data science is, is that if you know you can get a toolbox and you can make a model and it looks like it's working. Right, and suddenly you're like, "Yeah, I'm a data scientist," you know, like, yeah. awesome. Um, and but then there's that old, but why, but how, yeah. but curiosity uh, element. Yeah, of, but is it yeah. really, you know, learning what it's doing? You know, yeah. you know the old. I mean, it's been used a million times. The one about the the U.S. Army and the tanks and the forest. I don't know if you know that one, yeah. Um, so it's like, is it really take? Is it is it just know it's a rainy day or a sunny day, or does it actually know there's a tank there, right? So um, it's like that's that's where. Um, that's where the scary thing is, is where, 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 where people have enough knowledge to produce something without necessarily knowing if they produced it the right way. Mm. And, the, you know, the, the dirty secret of data science really is it's 90% of it is all data preparation and due diligence, right? Mm. The really fun stuff's only about 10%, which sucks, yeah. right? Um, but having that process of, and, and you know, knowing why, why you're using that data, why you're using those features, and this is the model that I'm using and this and I know why I've chosen that and these are the this is the process or the tools that I've used to get to there and being able to justify all those steps instead of just going oh that's what I did last time yeah yeah absolutely. Um, so that's a that's a big deal for us yeah absolutely 90% cleaning the car and 10% driving it exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well said cool okay well great fantastic speaking with you really enjoyed the chat today I think it's been a, a great episode and a huge amount of 
value and perspective shared. Um, I always like to draw to a close with all my podcasts by asking for your one favourite piece of advice that you've ever received. Uh, if there's anything that springs to mind that you would pass on to your uh, your humankind, um, yeah, what would that be for you? Well, yeah, there is one actually. It was um, I, I I worked with a, an old Sparky. I didn't get to work with him very much, but when he came to head office um, a few times, he he could see that I was getting very frustrated with the management. They didn't understand what I was trying to do, and that clearly I was you know trying to do the right thing. And and and, and basically, I, I, I my creativity and and what was best for the business was being stifled, and I was getting very frustrated. Um, do you have a bleeper on this? <laughs> no, we go for it. I think that most of our audience yeah. is over 18. Yeah, so, um, but he, um, he could see how frustrated it was and he could see that I was trying to make everyone's life easier because I was standardising things and, you know, whatever. Um, and he just came up to me and said, don't let the bastards get you down like this. And I just thought, and that has been the best advice ever because, you know, you know, like if you've got a yeah. dream, you've got a passion, you want to do, don't let people tell you you can't do it or like hold you down. You just follow your heart and, and back yourself, you know, yeah. and... Um, it was the best advice I've ever been given. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, a very nice way to end the episode. So uh, thanks again for coming in. Really enjoyed the chat. Great to see you. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, keeping up speed with all your uh, adventures in time to come. Thanks, guys. It's been an absolute pre- pleasure, mate. Take care.